one former president, four indictments, 91 criminal charges. The lead starts right now. Donald Trump lashing out today after the latest indictment against him, this one in Fulton County, Georgia, why this case could be so consequential. Plus, the actions of Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, charged for the first time in one of these cases, a chief Trump critic and 2024 rival is here, Governor Chris Christie. Why he, a former federal prosecutor himself, says he's uncomfortable with how the Georgia indictment went down. And one week after the first evacuations in Hawaii, new questions about warning systems. Did the wildfire make them inoperable or did no one ever sound the alarm? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our Law and Justice Lead. 91 charges. That's what Donald Trump is now facing after he was indicted in Fulton County, Georgia, late last night. This is the fourth time he has been indicted since leaving office. The former president is one of 19 people charged in Georgia for his and their attempts to overturn the 2020 election results in that state. Trump joined by his former attorneys, John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis as well as former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. All of them have been given until noon next Friday to turn themselves in. One major difference in this case is the racketeering charge that Trump and his co-conspirators face. Prosecutors are accusing Trump of being the head of a, quote, criminal enterprise, working to overthrow democracy. And in Georgia, that racketeering charge carries with it a five-year mandatory minimum prison sentence. Mr. Trump is once again today lashing out and reverting to his playbook, attacking the prosecutor, calling this a witch hunt, insisting without any evidence that the 2020 election was stolen, to which Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp, a conservative Republican and former Trump endorser, responded this afternoon, quote, the 2020 election in Georgia was not stolen. For nearly three years now, anyone with evidence of fraud has failed to come forward under oath and prove anything in a court of law. Our elections in Georgia are secure, accessible, and fair, and will continue to be as long as I am governor, unquote. The Georgia indictment is nearly 100 pages long and includes a sweeping list of ways that Trump allegedly broke the law. So CNN Sarah Murray is starting off our coverage today by digging into what exactly went down in Georgia. A 10-day clock for Donald Trump and his allies to turn themselves in here in Georgia. I am giving the defendants the opportunity to voluntarily surrender no later than noon on Friday, the 25th day of August, 2023. After Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis unveiled the fourth indictment against the former president at a near midnight press conference. The defendants engaged in a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn Georgia's presidential election result. It's the most sweeping indictment yet, charging Trump alongside 18 other defendants, including prominent alleged co-conspirators, like his former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and his former attorney Rudy Giuliani. There's nobody in this country that has used a racketeering statute more than I have. This is a disgrace. According to the indictment, Trump and the other defendants charged in this indictment refused to accept that Trump lost, and they knowingly and willfully joined a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the election in favor of Trump. If convicted of racketeering, the defendants face a minimum five-year sentence. 
the RICO charges has time that you have to serve. The wide-ranging indictment covers Trump's infamous January 2021 call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes. The harassment campaign by Trump supporters against election worker Ruby Freeman. I cannot say what specifically will um, take place. I just know that it will disrupt your As well as the Trump campaign's fake electors plot and the breach of a voting system in rural Coffee County. Trump posting that all charges should be dropped against me and others. There will be a complete exoneration. As he clings to baseless claims of voter fraud and vows to hold a press conference about it Monday. Republican Governor Brian Kemp, once a Trump ally, fired back on Twitter. The 2020 election in Georgia was not stolen. The Fulton County Sheriff says he hopes to keep the surrender process consistent with what local defendants usually face. Unless someone tells me differently, we are, we are following our, part, our, our normal practices. And so it doesn't matter your status. We, we have mugshots ready for you. The district attorney indicating a trial could be massive. Do you intend to try all of these defendants together? Do I intend to try the 19 defendants in this indictment together? Yes. And she hopes to get to it in speedy fashion. We do want to move this case along, and so we will be asking for a proposed order that occurs a trial date within the next six months. But that might be difficult with Trump's other criminal and civil trials next year. Now, we are still waiting to hear when defendants, including former President Donald Trump, may choose to turn themselves in. And, Jake, the process here is going to work a little bit differently than it did in federal court. The day that these folks surrender and are processed is not necessarily going to be the day we see them in court. We're going to wait for the judge who was assigned to this case to set some kind of initial appearance for these defendants. Jake. All right, Sarah Murray in Atlanta, Georgia, for us. Thank you so much. Let's discuss with former federal prosecutor and CNN legal analyst Jennifer Rogers. Jennifer, one of the big questions today is whether Trump's legal team is going to try to get this case moved from state to federal court by noting that he was holding a federal office when the alleged crimes took place. How does a judge decide that and how likely is it that that could succeed? Well, I think it's unlikely to succeed. The judge will decide by referring to the statute at issue. So a uh, a defendant can try to remove to federal court if he or she is a federal officer and if the conduct charge involves their professional duties as a federal officer. So he would argue that as president, he's responsible for ensuring that elections for president are secure and that's all he was doing. Uh, the problem is the indictment, of course, is full of allegations that that's not what he was doing, that there are people charged with ensuring elections are fair and clean and those are the state elections officials that actually uh, conduct the elections in the states and that he actually was interfering with them. So uh, he's not going to be able to prove that, in fact, he was acting within the confines of his job at that time. And so ultimately, I think he will make the motion and it will be denied. How might this case be different if it does get moved to a federal court instead of uh, Fulton County, Georgia? Really three reasons. First of all, the jury pool is better for Trump. It's a more rural area, includes more counties that he won in the last election. So he likes the look of the jury pool more. He might get a judge that he feels will be more fair to him or more on his side. And then importantly, if it moves to federal court, it then is under the federal government's control, right? So if he were to win the election or even another Republican would win, he would be more likely to pardon himself, get a pardon from someone else, or just interfere 
interfere directly with the case by ordering it dismissed through his attorney general. Special counsel Smith, Jack Smith, he charged Donald Trump for his actions in Georgia just a few weeks ago, uh, but he did not charge any other alleged co-conspirators. Why do you think Smith only pursued charges against Trump uh, as opposed to Fulton County indicting 19 people, including Trump? I think Smith and Willis just went about their cases in very different ways. Jack Smith pretty clearly wanted to get this as streamlined as possible to get it tried as early as possible. So he just charged Trump and he's pushing for an early trial date. Despite what Fonnie Willis is saying about trying to get this thing going in the next six months, there's just no way that's happening. She did what prosecutors usually do. She charged everyone she wanted to charge with everything she wanted to charge them with. That's arguably the way it should be done, but it's going to mean here that there's no way this goes to trial, probably even before the election. There are just too many defendants, too much litigation to happen, too many schedules to coordinate and so on. Well, she said she wants to try all 19 of the defendants at the same time. How many of the 19 defendants do you think are actually going to end up going to trial? It is, of course, a possibility that some of them might choose to to cooperate and, and flip. Not just flip, Jake, a lot of them will just plead out. They will start making offers, especially to some of the folks who are at the bottom of that food chain. They'll give them offers that perhaps don't include any mandatory minimum time. They'll try to thin out this uh, this case pretty quickly. I think they probably would struggle to do more than, say, six to eight defendants in the courtroom. It just gets logistically difficult. So they're going to try to start getting rid of people. Some will be cooperators. Some will just plead out. All right. Former prosecutor Jennifer Rogers, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss Republican presidential candidate and former U.S. attorney uh, Chris Christie. Uh, Governor Christie, thanks for joining us. You said today uh, earlier that the Georgia charges against Donald Trump you feel are, quote, unnecessary uh, because you feel as though Jack Smith, the special counsel, has already charged Trump for these exact actions in Georgia. Now, Now, Georgia prosecutors might point out if Trump is elected president, He can just shut down Jack Smith's case or pardon himself, but he wouldn't have the right to do that with a Georgia investigation and or verdict. What's your response to that? Well, Jake, you know, I don't think that's a prosecutor's job. Prosecutor's job is to look at how you administer justice in this case. And, And let me say, first off, that I have no argument with the underlying conduct constituting something that should be seriously considered by any grand jury at the state or at the federal level. But what happened here was Jack Smith charged the case. He charged the case weeks ago that consumes this conduct. Now, she could have brought this case without Donald Trump. And because Jack Smith didn't charge anybody else other than Donald Trump in this matter. And so I think the double charging here uh, of Donald Trump is just something that complicates things in a way which makes the administration of justice much more difficult in the near term. And so I didn't think it was a necessary thing to do once you saw that Jack Smith was charging him federally for the very same conduct. We would have these kind of um, discussions amongst federal and state prosecutors when I was U.S. attorney, and we would work it out so that we didn't do these things. And I'm a little bit concerned that this had more to do with ego than anything else, that her office had put a lot of time into an investigation. Jack Smith came in a number of months ago, swooped in, moved quickly, charged the case and that, you know, at this point you felt like, you know, I put all this time in, I should charge the president because I put my time in. I don't think that's the way you make these calls. And mm-hmm. so um, I think it was an unnecessary thing to do because she has 18 other defendants who have not been charged anyplace else um, that she could have charged without Trump and still had a very, very strong case down there. So beyond that concern, 
independent of that, when you read this indictment, is this a solid case, do you think? The conduct is very disturbing, Jake. Um, That's why I said that off the top. When you look at what um, he's alleged to have done here, along with others on his behalf, the, the pressure campaign that was put on these folks. Look, Donald Trump got due process in Georgia. There was an original count. There was a machine recount. Then there was a hand recount, all of which came up with essentially the same result. He had access to all the courts in Georgia to contest it in the same way that Al Gore contested these matters in Florida State Court back in 2000. The difference being that when Al Gore ultimately lost his case, um, he conceded and moved on. Donald Trump ratcheted the pressure up even more, ultimately resulting in what we saw on January 6th. And so, yeah, there's a, a lot of disturbing conduct here, not just by Donald Trump, but by a number of others named in the in the indictment. What about the racketeering charges uh, specifically as a former U.S. attorney? I would think you've you've probably used RICO statutes uh, statewide and federal. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering what you think about uh, Fannie Willis's application of them here. Look, the, the RICO statute in Georgia is a very broad statute, even broader than the federal statute, Jake. I never used a RICO statute on a state level, but I did use it as U.S. attorney. Uh, Look, she's got a number of predicate acts here, which is what required, I think, 161 predicate acts she cites. Um, Now, people misunderstand. They think every one of those acts has to be a crime. What she's really establishing is that these were acts in furtherance of the conspiracy to commit that crime. And, you know, the fact here is that the RICO statute being as broad as it is, it is it is in Georgia gives her the opportunity to do it this way. I don't know if I would have charged it that way, but now we're into the realm of just second guessing. Um, every prosecutor is going to make their own judgments on these things. But is it certainly is it permissible for her to have done what she did here at RICO? Given how broad this RICO statute is in Georgia, I think it is. Uh, we had Mark Short, uh, the Vice President Pence's uh, former chief of staff, uh, who's obviously supporting Vice President Pence's presidential race. Uh, on yesterday, and I asked him, do you think this fourth indictment is going to have the same effect that the previous three did, which was basically uh, solidifying a lot of support for Donald Trump among Republican voters? He said he didn't know, uh, but that the court case itself, the prosecution, Donald Trump in court, evidence being presented, all of that might change this dynamic that we've seen. What do you think? Look, I think Mark has that read pretty well. Um, all of this is just theoretical now to the public, right? They, most people are not going to read the indictment, Jake. They're just going to read whatever news reports that they, they read about characterizations of it. It becomes much different when there's, a, when there's a trial going on. And that's why I think Jack Smith charged this case the way he did, with just Donald Trump as a defendant, no one else. He wants to move that case quickly and get this case done. He wants January. That might be a little bit tight, but I, I could certainly see this happening in February or March um, of 2024. And so, you know, I do think when evidence starts to be presented, witnesses get on the stand and tell their story. And if the, if, if the prosecution does an effective job of weaving that story together um, and Donald Trump has to be sitting there. Remember, Jake, he has to be there every day. This yeah. is not an optional exercise. You are a criminal defendant. And I think that's one of the things folks should keep in mind that are watching. He is now going to be, when he appears next week in Georgia sometime, 
he's going to be out on bail in four different jurisdictions in this country, New York, Miami, Washington, and Atlanta. I think that what Republican voters have to start to ask themselves is two things. One, is someone out on bail in four jurisdictions really our best chance to beat Joe Biden? And secondly, are we really going to continue to act as if this is normal conduct? It's not. So even if you disagree with some of the criminal charges here, if you think they were an overreach, or as I think on this one, they're unnecessary, it doesn't get rid of the underlying conduct, which is what we should be discussing in the campaign, which is, does this man have the temperament and the character to beat Joe Biden and to be president of the United States again? And I I firmly believe the answer to that is no. Yeah, he'll be under indictment in every single National League East city, with the exception uh, of the great city of Philadelphia. Uh, Governor, well, what's Chris, going on, Jake, with your old uh, city that they're they're not in? I just root for, for the, the Phillies. Enemies. I just root for the Phillies. I have nothing to do with prosecutions, but uh, no. but uh, you're a Mets fan, I believe. So I thought, yes, I, I am a Mets fan, suffering, Jake, I, I suffering. Thought I, would, I thought you painfully might appre- right now. You appreciate the reference, Republican yes. presidential candidate, former New York user Governor Chris Christie. Thanks so much, uh, and best of luck at the debate next week. Jake, thank you very much, and thanks for having me on. Coming up, the other 18 co-conspirators also charged in Fulton County, from former Trump attorneys to fake electors, and one who was a publicist for Ye, a.k.a. Kanye West. Plus, the actions of Mark Meadows, Trump's former White House chief of staff. What led Meadows to be charged in this case and not in any of the others against Trump? And activity today in another high-profile case from the special counsel investigating Hunter Biden. The president's son. Stay with us. In our law and justice lead, uh, a closer look now at the 18 co-conspirators charged in this indictment, along with Donald Trump in Fulton County, Georgia. One of those co-defendants is Mark Meadows, the former president's uh, former White House chief of staff. He was obviously in the room for many of the pivotal events surrounding election subversion attempts. In, In recent months, Mark Meadows has kept a low profile, but not low enough to fly under the Georgia district attorney's radar. In Donald Trump's previous federal indictment connected to the 2020 election, Mark Meadows had managed to escape any charges, leading many to wonder if the former White House chief of staff may have turned on his former boss. I think one name that's that's obviously not in that in the indictment is uh, Mark Meadows, who was kind of the ringleader of all of this. But Meadows' fate changed Monday night when the grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, charged him and 18 other defendants, including the former president, with racketeering for their efforts to try to overturn the 2020 election. In the indictment, prosecutors say the defendants, quote, joined a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the election in favor of Trump. Beyond Trump himself, Meadows is the highest-ranking official to be charged, and the indictment outlines the key role prosecutors say Meadows played to try to keep Trump in power. Mr. President! In the weeks following Trump's election loss, Meadows got involved. According to the indictment on November 20th, Meadows and Trump met with Michigan legislators in the White House, where the former president made false claims of election fraud in that state. The next day, prosecutors say Meadows sent a text to Pennsylvania Congressman Scott Perry asking, quote, can you send me the number for the speaker and the leader of Pennsylvania legislature? POTUS wants to chat with them. The following week, Meadows and Trump met with Pennsylvania legislators at the White House. The same day, co-defendants Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis also traveled to the Commonwealth and, quote, 
solicited, requested, and importuned the Pennsylvania legislators present at the meeting to unlawfully appoint presidential electors from Pennsylvania. Meadows was also allegedly deeply involved in the efforts to overturn election results in Georgia. According to the indictment, on December 22nd, Meadows traveled to Cobb County, Georgia, and attempted to watch an election audit that was in progress but not open to the public. He was turned away. Meadows then arranged a phone call between Trump and then-chief investigator for the Georgia Secretary of State, Francis Watson. The people of Georgia are so angry at what happened to me. They know I won. What by hundreds of thousands of votes? It wasn't close. When the right answer comes out, you'll be praised. But perhaps the most notable, if not the most damning, phone call Meadows arranged for President Trump was with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Mr. President, everybody is on the line, and just so this is Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, just so we all are aware. Where Trump told Raffensperger this. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes which is one more that we have, because we won the state. Meadows' role in that phone call earned him a second charge for solicitation of violation of oath by a public officer. And CNN's Tom Foreman is here for us now. Tom, let's take a closer look at some of Trump's other co-defendants in this case. Let's start with uh, Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, remember what you've been talking about here, Jake, over and over again, the idea of racketeering, of a lot of people working together, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. In that role, Rudy Giuliani in this indictment is presented as something of a ringmaster with his fingers in many different areas, not just in the indictment, but in our experience as well. What is he specifically charged with here? That he made false claims of election fraud over and over again, and specifically made them before members of Georgia's legislature, asking them to take steps to overturn it. And he backed the idea of fake electors, people who would go forward and say, no, we're the real electors. We're here to give the electoral votes to Trump, even though they lawfully and rightfully belonged to Joe Biden. Now, Giuliani spoke about it just this afternoon. Listen to what he had to say. I woke up this morning more excited than I have in weeks. He said, why? Because I got a fight on my hands and a justifiable one. We're going we're gonna to beat these fascists into the ground. Bull take there, Jake. What about some of the other names of individuals close to Donald Trump? Some you will recognize, uh, Sidney Powell being one of them, another attorney that worked with him. She is specifically tied to this notion that was mentioned earlier on in the show about the breach of election computers that happened out in Coffee County out there. What happened? Were there some Trump supporters out there, some people who came in out there who allegedly broke into the system, to basically get the sensitive, protected data because they were trying to prove that something was wrong with the voting machines. Yeah, some locals were also charged, but there is email evidence, a chain that could link Sidney Powell in the White House to these people out there. Again, speaking to that idea of racketeering, Jake, not just a few people going off the, off the grid here at a grassroots level, but all the way up to the top. And then we get down to several people whom... Uh, probably very few of our viewers would recognize, and yet they've also been charged along with the former president. Tell us about them. Well, one is a, a minister from up around Chicago. He's charged with traveling all the way down to Georgia to put pressure on election workers to say, I want you to admit there was fraud, even though there was no fraud. And then there is uh, Travion Cuddy, who was once a publicist for R. Kelly and for Ye, Kanye West, you mentioned earlier, same sort of charge, the idea of leaning on 
and threatening campaign workers to admit to things that simply did not happen, all of which speaks to the idea of all these people, as we said, working in concert. That's the basic claim. All right, Tom Farmer, thanks so much. Coming up, a top Georgia official who testified as a witness before the Fulton Grand Jury will join me. What he makes of Chris Christie's argument that the charges in the case were unnecessary because they could be covered at the federal level. Stay with us. In our Law and Justice lead, former President Donald Trump on Truth Social yesterday attacked a key witness in Georgia's 2020 election subversion case, saying that the witness should not testify before the grand jury. Spoiler alert, that witness did testify. And soon after, Trump and 18 of his fellow defendants were indicted on charges in connection with attempts to overturn the election in Georgia. That witness is Jeff Duncan, Georgia's former lieutenant governor and a conservative Republican. On December 3rd, 2020, while Duncan was in a meeting of the Georgia State Senate, Rudy Giuliani was there spreading conspiracy theories about widespread irregularities and fraud in the state, things that were not true. CNN contributor Jeff Duncan joins us now. So, Jeff, you seem to have taken Trump's uh, warning, threat, whatever you want to call it to you about, you know, you should not testify uh, in stride. He he misspelled your name, you noted. Um, Trump now faces 91 charges in four criminal cases that are headed to trial. Are you concerned that he might continue to make similar comments uh, aimed at other witnesses? Well, certainly. That, that's just his game. He's going to continue to, to play a child's game. And uh, look, if, if he didn't do anything wrong, this should be really easy. He should be able to present the facts and details of, of the proof that he's got, the mountains of evidence that him and Rudy and others talked about uh, endlessly and be able to present it and, and get out of this and move on with his life. Uh, my, my guess is the reason why he's, he's you know, so hostile is because that information isn't there. Those files aren't there. Those dead bodies that voted, those felons that got out of jail, those mountains of, of missing ballots that showed up at the last second, they're just not there. Uh, and so it's, it's just a childish game he plays. And look, politically speaking, that presents this problem called the 2024 election, right? We have the, most, the, the weakest polling president, sitting president ever, probably, and yet we're neck and neck. Uh, we, we, we certainly can do better. What do you make of Governor Chris Christie's argument that, that this indictment in Fulton County is unnecessary because so much of it was covered by the federal indictment by Special Counsel Jack Smith? Well, Governor Christie is certainly versed, well-versed in the law way more than me. I, I got sucked into playing six years of minor league baseball instead of going to law school. Uh, and so I'll, I'll take uh, his, his words of wisdom uh, under consideration. But at the end of the day, we both agree on the same thing. And that's Donald Trump is wrong for this country. Uh, he's, he's, uh, you know, he's committed uh, egregious acts that have put us in a terrible position, not only as a party, but more importantly, as a country. Uh, and he's certainly going to have to face, uh, face the music. Trump and his fellow co-defendants uh, face a sweeping charge under Georgia's Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO. Uh, major events uh, that built the case include how Trump's team allegedly misled State officials in Georgia, they organized fake electors, they harassed election worker Ruby Friedman, they pressured the Justice Department and Vice President Pence, they breached election equipment in a rural Georgia county. Um, Some critics have said using Georgia's RICO Act in this way might be a bit of a stretch. Um, You're the former lieutenant governor. What do you think? Well, when I read through the indictment yesterday and this morning, to the best of my ability, it really brought brought to life to three dimension what we felt uh, two and a half years ago. Uh, You could just feel and sense this coordinated effort that just was endless and coming from all angles, whether it be conspiracy theories or faux electors or misinformation or pressure campaigns or or timely tweets. 
and phone calls. The indictment really, for me, brought that in, into three dimension. It helped connect those dots. And uh, th- they certainly have got their work cut out for them to try to explain, right? I mean, I, I don't think it's going to work very well just saying, oh, the entire time I thought all of these uh, you know, conspiracy theories were real and actual. At some point, somebody, have had, my guess, had to have buckled uh, and put something in writing. But uh, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see it play out. Yesterday afternoon, a document showing a 39-count indictment against Trump was posted on the Fulton County Court website. Then it was quickly removed. The Fulton County Clerk's Office just confirmed that this was a dummy document used as a test in preparations for possible real indictments to come down. Republicans uh, are, are making a big deal out of it, saying that the fix was in um, you know, before the grand jury even voted. Do you think that this is a legit issue, or do you think it's a a, a ruse, a red herring for Republicans to tr- just try to change the subject? Well, I, I certainly don't know the inner workings of the clerk's office. It sounds like some sort of administrative error. But uh, I, look, once again, uh, we, we, we need to, as Republicans, take this uh, as an opportunity to pivot uh, and hold folks accountable for misinformation. Uh, and if we just try to create shiny objects for folks to stare at, uh, we're going to continue to step on ourselves. We're going to continue to lose elections, election cycles. We're going to continue to lose entire bodies of Congress. We're going to continue to lose the White House. We're going to continue to track in a negative direction. If we just simply make the next couple of years about the issues, if we make it about the border, if we make it about education, if we make it about the budget, if we make it about the economy, if we make it about national security, we will win. We will win running away with it. But if we make it about Donald Trump, it's going to be a three-ring circus and we will lose. And the only place we're going to be able to make our campaign speeches as Republicans are going to be on courthouse steps because it looks like every Republican that hung out with Donald Trump is going to get an indictment. Jeff Duncan, former lieutenant governor of Georgia, thanks for your time, sir. Thanks, Jake. We're also following developments today in the Hunter Biden case, what a new court filing means for the special counsel investigation into his actions. Stay with us. Back with our law and justice lead, Hunter Biden is definitely not off the hook for his felony gun possession charge, according to the newly appointed special counsel, David Weiss. Lawyers for the president's son tried to argue that the Justice Department backed out of a specific part of the now crumbled plea deal that would have let Hunter avoid the repercussions of buying a gun when he was using drugs, even though he claimed he wasn't on the form, which he later admitted to in a memoir. CNN's Kara Scannell is following this all. And Kara, we're just learning that lawyers for Hunter Biden and prosecutors agree that the tax charges he was facing need to be dismissed in Delaware. Tell us more about that. Yeah, Jake. So they're on the same page on one piece of this, but not on the rest. So they're both in agreement that the tax charges that were filed in Delaware as part of this now collapsed plea deal should be dismissed. And the reason that both sides say that's the case is because none of the alleged tax crimes occurred in Delaware. So special counsel's office had asked for this to be dismissed on Friday, saying that they need it dismissed so they have the opportunity to bring charges in the jurisdictions where the alleged crimes took place, either Washington, D.C. or California. But that's the only place they're on the same page. They're both on opposing views on the what happens to this gun diversion deal. Uh, Hunter Biden's team saying on Sunday night that they think that this deal is still binding and valid because both prosecutors and Hunter Biden had signed this deal. Now, in a new court filing today, the special counsel's office is saying that it is not a binding deal, and they're saying it's because it's lacking one other signature, and that's from the head of the U.S. Probation Department in Delaware. Uh, In the filing, they write, because she did not approve the now-withdrawn diversion agreement, it never went into effect, and therefore 
therefore none of its terms are binding on either party. So that puts this gun diversion deal back in the hands of the judge. Though you remember last month, she was not a fan of how it was structured, questioning whether it was constitutional. Uh, so now she will be the next one to make the move on what happens with this deal. Jake. And Kara, Hunter Biden's top lawyer asked a federal judge today for permission to withdraw from representing Hunter Biden. Why? Yeah, so this attorney, Chris Clark, has been representing Hunter Biden for years during this criminal investigation. And Biden's team asking today for him to have permission to withdraw from this case, saying that he could be a witness because he has firsthand knowledge of the plea negotiations and the drafting of those plea documents. So they're saying he can no longer serve as an advocate for Hunter Biden, but Biden has a large legal team so that will not um, upset the process here in this case as it moves forward now as part of the special counsel investigation. Jake. All right, Kara Scannell, thanks so much. Appreciate it. CNN is on the ground in Hawaii where there is growing frustration. Days after wildfires tore through the island of Maui, the response those most impacted are getting from people in charge is next. In our national lead, just a short while ago, President Biden spoke about the devastation from the wildfires on Hawaii's island of Maui. It's his first comment uh, publicly in days. Take a listen. Thoughts and prayers with the people of Hawaii, but not just our prayers. Every asset, every asset they need will be there for them. And we will be there in Maui as long as it takes. The president's comments came amid growing frustration directed at the federal and local response. And critics who want President Biden to visit the devastated area, the president said he does not want to get in the way of ongoing recovery efforts. The Maui disaster is now the nation's deadliest wildfire in more than a century. At least 99 people have died. Hawaii's governor told CNN he expects that number to double in the coming days. And then there's the investigation. Hawaii's governor told CNN that emergency sirens that failed to go off to warn people of incoming danger may have been immobilized by extreme heat. That is different than other officials who said emergency management personnel never triggered the sirens. One week since the first evacuation orders, crews are still trying to find people who are missing and house those whom are displaced. Nearly 90% of buildings damaged or destroyed were residential. CNN's Gloria Pasmino is reporting from from Kula on the island of Maui. And Gloria, we know the number of people at shelters is starting to dwindle, but are, are people beginning to get the help and the resources they need? Well, Jake, uh, the answer is not here so far where we are standing. We're, as you said, we are in Kula, and this is an area that's about 40 miles from Lahaina. That is, of course, the area that's been worst affected by the fire. But as you can see, there is an incredible amount of loss and devastation here, too. You can take a look at just the area behind me. Entire homes are gone. The one right there across the street, the car is completely burned out. Just about 200 feet over, there's another house that is completely gone. And the rubble that you're seeing here, these mangled pieces of metal, these piles of molten debris, is the kind of stuff that people back in Lahaina are having to sift through. As you said, they're trying to identify human remains, an extremely difficult and a long process. It's going to take a long time, but that's what they need to do in order to give the families of those who are missing their loved ones some closure. 
It's unclear how many people remain unaccounted for as the death toll on Maui continues to rise. It will go up very significantly. The president addressing the federal response on Tuesday. I've spoken to Governor Josh Green multiple times and reassured him the state will have everything it needs from the federal government. Residents who want to return home to assess the damage are facing challenges. It's just hard and unbelievable. Outside West Maui, frustrated family members are waiting. Officials suspended an access plan after just one day, saying too many non-residents and others tried to get entry. My dad's still there. There's certain things that he still needs that we need to get to him specifically, um, like medicine. If people go into Ground Zero too soon, our responders, our FEMA folks, will not be able to do the job that they are there to do. The entire catastrophic chain of events and the official response, now the focus of a state investigation. I've personally authorized a comprehensive review, so we have every answer going forward. For now, the island spirit of family is giving many survivors hope. It's a big ohana here on the island, so everyone's doing the same thing. We're all chipping in, we're doing our best. And I'm seeing that spirit here, Jake. That's Ross you're looking at. He is the owner of the house behind me. He is waiting for insurance adjusters to show up here to the area so he can start to process his claim. He says that's his priority right now. He's uh, remarkably in good spirits despite the fact that he's lost his entire home. Jake. Gloria Pasmino in Maui, thank you so much. In addition to the 19 co-defendants charged in Georgia, the Fulton County prosecutor also mentioned 30 co-conspirators, not identified, not indicted, what CNN is piecing together about who they may be and their roles in the 2020 election fraud case. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead on Jake Tapper. This hour, Blindsided. Michael Orr, the NFL player whose life story was featured in the Oscar-winning film The Blind Side, is now suing the family who took him in, claiming that they lied to him and took millions. Plus, an agonizing and slow search for the people who could not escape the flames in Hawaii as the death toll rises to 99 confirmed dead. And now we're hearing a different explanation for why the warning sirens were not used. And leading this hour, former President Trump now facing an unprecedented 91 criminal charges for his unprecedented behavior. This after he was indicted in Fulton County, Georgia, late last night. Donald Trump is not alone. He's one of 19 people charged in this Georgia case for their attempts to overturn the 2020 election results in that state. Trump's former lawyers, John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and Jenna Ellis were also charged, as well as former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. All of them have been given until noon next Friday to turn themselves in. One major difference in this case is the racketeering charge that Trump and his co-conspirators face. CNN's Paula Reed is outside the Fulton County Courthouse in Atlanta for us. Paula, this is a wide-ranging racketeering case that invokes a law normally used, at least on the federal level, to prosecute organized crime, mobsters. Lay out these charges for us. That's exactly right, Jake. Well, special counsel Jack Smith filed a pretty narrow indictment focused solely on former President Trump. Here, District Attorney Fonnie Willis is pursuing this as a RICO case. She is alleging a vast conspiracy uh, by this group, these 19 defendants, to try to overturn the results of the election here in Georgia. And to support this, she has offered up a nearly 100-page indictment that details 161 acts that were part of this conspiracy 
across these 19 defendants. There were also 30 unindicted co-conspirators, and these allegations span seven states and the District of Columbia. While this is the fourth criminal indictment Trump faces this year, this is by far the most sweeping. Now, RICO cases are notoriously challenging. They tend to get drawn out. And when you have 19 defendants and their attorneys, it's easy to see how things could get drawn out for months, even years. But the district attorney has said, Jake, she wants to try everyone together. And she's hoping, she says, to ask for a trial in the next six months. So, Paula, former President Trump and the 18 others who have been indicted um, have 10 days to voluntarily surrender. How might this booking look different from the other arraignments Mr. Trump has gone through? Well, it's going to look certainly different than what we've seen at the federal level. And we've seen a few now with the former president. But there you saw he was processed. He had his initial appearance and his arraignment all in one fell swoop. But here in Georgia, he and all the other defendants have until next Friday to surrender. Typically, that surrender is done to the Fulton County Sheriff's Office. And as part of that, uh, there's usually a mugshot and fingerprints. But given the former president's status, his Secret Service protection, it is likely that they may negotiate uh, something a little bit different for him. And then the initial appearance, that date is up to the judge. It could be days weeks, uh, potentially months before we see that initial appearance by the former president or any of these other defendants. So, Paul, let's talk about uh, Mark Meadows for a second. Uh, Meadows, of course, being Trump's former White House chief of staff. He was not named a co-conspirator or even suggested to be a co-conspirator in Jack Smith's indictment. But he is named as a co-defendant in this Georgia case. Why? It's been one of the biggest questions of all of the various investigations into the efforts to overturn the election. Because we know from the January 6th committee, they did an exhaustive investigation. And while they didn't have the chance to speak to Mark Meadows, um, he did provide some helpful evidence. And they came to the conclusion that he was really at the center of this, that all roads this alleged conspiracy went right through Mark Meadows and accusing him of being really the chief enabler of former President Trump. So the fact that he had kept so quiet during the federal investigation was notable, even more so his conspicuous absence from the federal indictment. So to see him charged here is significant. And when you read through the indictment, I mean, Fannie Willis, she lays out these specific allegations against him, reminding people of just how intimately he was involved in so many of the aspects of this alleged conspiracy, including the enormous pressure that was being placed on Georgia officials, including, of course, most famously, the Secretary of State. All right, Paula Reed at the courthouse in Fulton County, Atlanta, Georgia, for us. Thanks so much. The Fulton County indictment mentions 30 unindicted co-conspirators, not named. Yes, you heard that right, 30, 30. CNN has been going through this indictment and cross-referencing with our own reporting to try to identify some of the unnamed individuals. There are lots of folks we know who testified or who played a role in the Georgia effort by the Trump team who escaped charges, such as Georgia Attorney Lynn Wood or South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham or former National Security Advisor General Mike Flynn, none of them mentioned by name in the indictment. CNN anchor of The Source, Caitlin Collins, joins me. Uh, Caitlin, one unnamed co-conspirator, Individual 8, he's called or she's called, appears 11 times in the indictment. We believe, CNN believes, it's Georgia's current lieutenant governor, Burt Jones. 
Yeah, we don't know for sure, Jake, but there are a lot of strong hints in here where you can pretty easily draw conclusions. Burt Jones seems to be one of them because it references a tweet that he posted. He is someone who is now the lieutenant governor, but he's someone who was one of those fake electors pledging to be uh, an alternate elector to Trump in this time period. He was calling for a special session of the Georgia legislature, something that the current, the former lieutenant governor, who at the time was Jeff Duncan, of course, refused those calls, as did the Georgia governor, Brian Kemp. But Burt Jones is someone who is named in here. There's a tweet that he posted. It is very clearly referenced. That is why it does appear to be Burt Jones here. The reason, though, he may not be on the list of indicted co-conspirators here, those names that you can actually see at the top, is Vonnie Willis was actually barred from being able to indict him. And part of that was because he was someone, it was determined by the judge that you saw last night, Judge McBurney, to be a conflict of interest because she is a Democrat. She hosted a fundraiser for the Democrat who ran against him for that position of lieutenant governor. It was kind of one of those moments where the judge said it was a what was she thinking kind of moment. Um, But he does appear to be someone in here. And so surely the state agency in Georgia, we know, is going to look into this because he does currently hold that position of lieutenant governor. And it seems pretty clear that he is referenced in here. Who are some of the other people we have been uh, able to identify of this list of, uh, of, unidenti- of unidentified, unindicted co-conspirators? There are 30 of them total. There's a lot of strong hints. Another one is Tom Fitton. He is believed to be individual one. He, of course, comes from the conservative group Judicial Watch. And the reason we believe it's him is because they reference a draft of a speech that he provided to Donald Trump in the days before the election. So on October 31st, I believe it was, where in an email he said, here's the the draft of the speech that you asked for. And basically what it said is that Trump should declare victory on election day on solely the ballots that were cast on that day, ignoring, of course, the millions of mail-in ballots. And the reason we believe it's him is because uh, we see what's in the indictment. We also know that there is a draft of an email that he sent to Molly Michael and Dan Scavino, two White House aides, saying, hey, Mr. President, here's the draft of that speech that you requested. Uh, I should note that we've reached out to him, Jake, and asked for comment. He has not responded yet. But again, these are very strong clues that are left in this indictment as to who these people could be. And, and Caitlin, uh, we've we've talked a lot about over the last few years um, the insane December 18th, 2020 Oval Office meeting where they talked about using the military to seize voting machines. That was with Trump, several advisors, including uh, Attorney Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. It was cited in the indictment. We know a lot about this meeting because of testimony for the House January 6th Select Committee. Yeah, and so two people were curious of who could potentially be unindicted. Co-conspirators here is potentially Mike Flynn, of course, Trump's former national security advisor, and Patrick Byrne. He is the former Overstock CEO um, and he is someone who was there that day. He was in the middle of the fight, screaming with the White House counsel at the time, Pat Cipollone and Eric Hirschman, confusing as to who they actually were. I mean, there's some pretty famous testimony from Eric Hirschman about that. What's notable is that this indictment does cite that December 18th Oval Office meeting. That Jake, you're right. It was one of the craziest, if not maybe the craziest moment in that post-election uh, part of Trump's presidency. It notably was not listed in the Jack Smith indictment, but it is listed um, in this indictment. So that raises the question of who uh, unindicted co-conspirator number 20 could be. Yeah, we know that it's not Hirschman, Lyons, uh, or Cipollone because they were pushing back on the on the crazy. Uh, Caitlin, yeah. thanks so much. We're going to see you again at 9 p.m. this evening for The Source. You're going to talk to 2024 presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson, former governor of Arkansas. Thanks so much for being with us. Let's bring in Ambassador John Bolton right now. He was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and served as Donald Trump's national security advisor. He is a vocal critic 
of his former boss. Now, uh, Ambassador Bolton, good to see you. I want to start with these uh, mysterious, unindicted co-conspirators, some of whom you may have crossed paths with in the White House. Um, do you think any of them or any of Trump's 18 fellow defendants might ultimately flip on Trump if they haven't already? I think it's very possible. I mean, I think uh, a lot of people have pointed to Mark Meadows, not named as a, as a co-conspirator in the federal indictment, but obviously named as a defendant here. Uh, it's pretty hard to see how, how he can be separated that way. So perhaps he cooperated at the federal level, didn't cooperate enough at the state level. But, but I think that's going to be extremely interesting to watch. And I'm sure that's one of the reasons that, uh, that this Georgia proceeding could take a long time to unfold. And, and of the four criminal cases, uh, in my view, probably the one almost certain to be after the November 24 election. Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie departed from his previous reactions to these indictments. He told me he thinks the Georgia uh, case is unnecessary because Jack Smith already charged Trump in a federal election meddling case. Uh, he thinks it should supersede uh, the Fulton County case. He also suggested on the show in the last hour that it's possible that District Attorney Fannie Willis's ego may have been involved uh, and not wanting to have all the hard work go to waste. Uh, what do you think? Well, I'd say with respect to Chris's remarks, uh, it's, it sounds like a former U.S. attorney who would say, get these state cases out of my way. Uh, I just say as a conservative Republican believer in federalism, let's hear it for state prosecutors. Is, is Fonnie Willis motivated uh, politically? I don't doubt it. A friend of mine once said, most U.S. attorneys wake up in the morning, look at themselves in the mirror and say, shall I run for governor or senator when I'm done with this job? That, that's what prosecutors do. The, the question is, can, can she prove this case in court? And I really think that's, that's, the, that's what's going to be important here over the next months, not the pretrial proceedings, not even the trials themselves. The only issue that's going to matter politically here is, does one of these prosecutors get a conviction? What do you think of this case now that you've read the indictment? Do you think it's strong? Do you agree with using RICO racketeering charges against the president and his fellow defendants? Well, I'm, I'm not a big fan of overreading statutes to go beyond uh, what they were intended to. I, I think this is going to be a very uh, hard case to, to bring to trial and to prove in all of its elements. I think almost certainly if it does go to trial with 19 defendants on all these charges, you're going to have some guilty and some not guilty. It's going to be a very mixed result because all of these allegations are not equal. All the charges are not equal. Uh, it, it's a, it's, they've made it a very complex case. A vast majority of 2024 voters have likely already made up their minds about Trump. Republican uh, consultant uh, Brendan Buck put it this way in The New York Times. He said, quote, for voters at this point, you've decided whether being indicted is problematic or if you believe this is all being done to undermine Trump's campaign, unquote. If Trump gets acquitted of any of these charges, you, you've expressed fear uh, that it could energize voters to catapult him to a second term. Um, do you think uh, prosecuting these crimes outweighs the, the risk of acquittal? Well, I, I don't think it's a question we have. Uh, it just shows there really isn't a deep state. Nobody sat down and said, I think the risk in all four of these cases justifies going forward. We had prosecutors that were operating independently. I personally think that, uh, that the documents case is the best case of the four uh, and I think does justify going ahead. The New York case ranked one to four. I'd rank that about 10th. Uh, and I think the January 6th election fraud uh, issue is, is somewhere in between. 
but yes, I think the risk is worthwhile because the people deserve to know whether Donald Trump is a felon. And I think uh, I disagree with this idea that because the indictments haven't shaken things up, that uh, people have already made up their mind. This just shows indictments are subject to the law of diminishing marginal utility like everything else. The issue here is when a former president is actually convicted, if that happens. That will move people's opinions. Ambassador John Bolton, good to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up next, we're going to get some insight on the Fulton County case with an attorney who knows the lead prosecutor, Fawny Willis, pretty well, plus the new outlook for a key source of water for much of the United States after the level plummeted. Stay with us. In our law and justice lead, a comprehensive picture of a former president's alleged attempt to steal the 2020 election all painted by a local prosecutor, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, in a 98-page indictment, lays out an elaborate racketeering scheme involving Trump and 18 other defendants. It's a culmination of an investigation that has lasted more than two years. Joining us from outside the Fulton County Court, Charlie Bailey, a former Fulton County Senior Assistant District Attorney, and Robert James, former DeKalb County District Attorney. Uh, Charlie, uh, listen to what uh, former Governor Chris Christie said last hour about Fonnie Willis's investigation. I'm a little bit concerned that this had more to do with ego than anything else, that her office had put a lot of time into an investigation. Jack Smith came in a number of months ago, swooped in, moved quickly, charged the case. Christie's argument is that the federal case makes this one redundant, this one against Trump. You've worked closely with Fonnie Willis. Your wife is also communications director for Fonnie Willis. Well, what do you make of what Christie said? Well, all, all due respect to uh, Governor Christie, I think he just doesn't know Fonnie Willis. You know, she said at the beginning of this investigation, she didn't know where the facts were going to lead. That's why she was going to do an investigation, and that's what a real prosecutor does. So she did that investigation, and she's led by the evidence to bring the charges uh, that she's brought. And I'm reminded of, you know, many many times when I sat in her office and we had cases together, and this is, you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago, nine years ago, these are cases that nobody was going to know the victim. Nobody, much in the victim's life, thought they mattered, but finally impressed upon me and everybody else that worked with her that they did matter and that the defendants mattered. And it didn't matter who they were. We were to follow the evidence, make charging decisions, and try cases based on that. And that's what she's done here. I know in this age of cynicism, we have a, a tendency to think everything's about politics. But Fonnie just means what she says. Nobody's above the law, and she's going to be led by the evidence. And I think that's what this indictment shows. So, Robert, getting an indictment is not all that difficult, as they say. Uh, you can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. Getting a conviction in a court with a jury with a higher standard, obviously much more difficult. Based on what you've seen in this indictment, do you think any of the charges might be too overreaching? Well, I wouldn't say overreaching. I would just say that, it, you know, it's going to be difficult. Look, you've got 19 defendants, uh, one of whom is the former president of the United States. Each of these individuals, they come, many of them rather, come with varying levels of uh, publicity and uh, public sentiment behind them. And there's a principle that's called, you know, jury nullification. And so as a prosecutor, you're always concerned when you're indicting public officials or celebrities that no matter what the evidence shows, that there's going to be certain people in the public that just do not want to 
convict. And so, um, so look, it's a tall task. It's a complex case. Several individuals, not impossible, but difficult. Charlie, Fannie Willis uh, hosted a fundraiser for you last year in your campaign for Georgia Lieutenant Governor. Uh, at the same time, of course, she was also investigating your Republican opponent, Burt Jones, for alleged 2020 election interference. She was ultimately disqualified by a judge from the investigation into Jones because of that fundraiser. And, and Jones, we believe, is one of nearly three dozen unindicted co-conspirators in this filing, unnamed, but we, we're pretty sure it's him. It, it's possible he could have been an indicted defendant if it were not for uh, the fundraiser. Do you have any regrets? No, I don't. You know, Fonnie's been my friend for, for many years, and, and she was backing me before Burt Jones even decided to run for lieutenant governor, before I decided to run for lieutenant governor when I was in the AG's race. And I'll just point out, I wasn't Burt Jones' opponent at the time. I was in a primary, and she was trying to help me win the primary, which I did. Um, but, you know, these are just distractions. The judge made the ruling that he made, and that's his right to make it. And Fonnie kept forward with her investigation and, and brought these charges, which seemed to be appropriate. Robert, Fonnie Willis says she wants to try all 19 co-defendants at the same time in the same trial. Uh, in a case with so many high-profile players uh, and so much nuance and com so many complexities, is that a wise approach, do you think? Well, look, you, you want to tell the story and you want to tell the most complete story that you can tell. Um, and to do that, it's important to have everybody there um, at the same time um, that has an opportunity to, to speak. Because, you know, look, in law, in prosecution in particular, there's a principle that if you're bringing in certain evidence, right, and that evidence comes from other co-conspirators, and you're using it to convict someone that is actually at the table, and it comes from someone that's not at the table, it may be problematic. Um, and so ultimately, you want everybody at the table so you can tell the entire story and the jury and the world can get a full picture and you're not dealing with exclusion issues because of it. All right, Robert James and Charlie Bailey, thanks so much for your time today, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Coming up next, a look at how Donald Trump's fourth criminal indictment is playing out on the campaign trail. Stay with us. In our 2024 lead, as former President Trump faces an historic and unprecedented fourth criminal indictment, the response from his competitors on the campaign trail has been a mixed bag, many rushing to Trump's defense. Vivek Ramaswamy writing, prosecutors should not be deciding U.S. presidential elections. Senator Tim Scott calling the charges un-American and unacceptable. Governor Ron DeSantis saying it was an example of the criminalization of politics. Others, of course, are more critical. Former Congressman Will Hurd saying this is further evidence that Trump knew he lost the 2020 election and was ready to do anything it took to cling to power. And Governor Asa Hutchinson saying Trump has disqualified himself from ever holding our nation's highest office again. Of course, we heard from Governor Christie earlier in the show. My panel joins me now. Uh, and Ashley, I just ticked through some of the responses. Um, he, let's play a little bit of what uh, Chris Christie said, because he was he didn't disagree with the, the charges and that there should be accountability, but he disagreed with this specific criminal indictment. Take a listen. She could have brought this case without Donald Trump. And because Jack Smith didn't charge anybody else other than Donald Trump in this matter. And so I think the double charging here uh, of Donald Trump is just something that complicates things in a way which makes the administration of justice much more difficult in the near term. What do you think? Well, I think if she doesn't 
charge Donald Trump in this case, it's also kind of playing to politics. If you're going to go after a RICO conspiracy, uh, 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 criminal rank, you go after the, the kingpin. You don't get all the, the little fish and then say, oh, I'll let the, the big guy kind of go free. No, you start at the top and you try and get, you know, the soldiers behind them. The other thing is that the DA was elected by people in Fulton County. And so she has to do the work of her constituents and not the work of the federal electorate that is going to make the decision on who was ultimately president. Now, Georgia is an important state and Fulton County is an important county in Georgia. But I think she actually played this without politics and said, I have a criminal conspiracy in my district and I'm going to go after it. So, Kevin Madden, let me ask you, one of the things you do hear most of Trump's uh, opponents for the presidential nomination, for the Republican nomination, uh, defending him or at the very least attacking uh, Fannie Willis, attacking the special counsel, et cetera, et cetera. You don't hear a tremendous amount of defenses of what Donald Trump actually did. I mean, there are very few factual disagreements about what either Jack Smith or Fannie Willis is asserting he did, much of which we just kind of all saw play out with our own eyes and ears. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an attempt to sort of um, balance the politics of it uh, effectively as possible with their base voters while, um, you know, trying to thread the needle when it comes to the substance, right? Because the substance on this, and if you look at the indictment and you read the uh, all the the uh, evidence that's behind it, as well as the phone call that happened back in 20, uh, 2020. Um, it's very, very hard to defend. Um, but I think to your earlier point, um, these messages that are mixed and muddled, like that's not how you win campaigns. You win campaigns by distinguishing exactly the differences between you and your opponent. And so these campaigns are really missing a huge opportunity because if you're going to go against Donald Trump and you want to make the case that you're the lead, that you should be the leader of the free world, um, you're going to have to make a very clear case to the voters that you're the best person for the job. And so these muddled defenses where they're defending them on one hand and then but, you know, then trying to attack the politics of the prosecutor on the other, it's going to land flat. David, uh, Trump said on Truth Social, his social media website, uh, that he is going to hold a press conference on Monday to present, quote, a large Complex, detailed, but irrefutable report, reports in all caps for some reason, on the presidential election fraud, that's capitalized for some reason, which took place in Georgia, and that, based on the results of this all caps, conclusive report, all charges should be dropped against me and others, there will be complete exoneration. What do you think? (laughs) Uh, I don't think we should pay a whole lot of attention to that. I said, we should note this, though. Donald Trump is presumed innocent right now. And he deserves that like any other uh, indicted person in America in the justice system. And if he wants to give a report about uh, what he thinks went on there in some way that's going to refute what we all saw, two recounts in the state, uh, every election official in the state, the Republican governor asserting that it was a free and fair election, he now has the opportunity to do that in a court of law. So I will be a lot more interested in what Donald Trump and his legal team presents in a court of law under oath than at a Bedminster press conference. So the governor of Georgia, a very conservative Republican named Brian Kemp, uh, responded to what Trump said, saying there was no fraud. We had a, you know, we've we've had an opportunity now for years for people to present any evidence of fraud that would have changed this election. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, uh, in a court of law under oath. And no one has done so. And yet most Republican voters believe Donald Trump and not 
Governor Kemp. Yeah, but most Republican voters in Georgia who've seen both of these cases presented support uh, Governor Kemp and elected Governor Kemp. They didn't, well, vote for Donald Trump. And so this is a really good example, Jake, of like if the 2020 uh, or if the 2024 hopefuls are looking for a template on both message and approach to persuading voters, Governor Kemp has already given it to them. He has the blueprint. He's demonstrated that you can speak truth to power, present your case to the voters and win in a in a very tough state by doing exactly that. And yet they all decide to look the other way or, um, again, like you like we mentioned earlier, mixed messages and and and, um, you know, muddled messages. Ashley, Trump is now facing in total 91 criminal charges, uh, 13 in the Georgia election case, four in Jack Smith's January 6th case, 40 in Jack Smith's classified documents case, 34 in Alvin Bragg's Manhattan hush money case. Uh, And this guy with 91 criminal charges, last time I looked, not only is the far and above Mm -hmm. leading uh, candidate to be the Republican nominee, he was tied with Joe Biden in a New York Times poll. Yeah, I mean, I think that after the first indictment, it was clear that this is a strong campaign strategy. We think this is the last indictment that he is going to face. The thing, the point that you were making, Kevin, about there's a Republican debate next week and there's a real opportunity for there to be a superstar and come out of the Republican Party and make very clear what they will do for the American public, whether I agree with their policy decisions or not, and to draw a line and distinguish them from Donald Trump. They won't do that, though, because they think it's not working today, this strategy of, like, coddle him and don't go too hard against him because my poll numbers will go up. These folks are stagnant, and they have been stagnant since they announced, and they continue to coddle Donald Trump. We'll try a new strategy next Wednesday and see what might happen, because, uh, yet again, Donald Trump is going to have to turn himself in to the state of Georgia in a couple of days. And what an amazing split screen that would be. I'm going to be the person to lead my party in a different direction while this guy is going to turn himself for a RICO charge. And Trump's right about, like, you know, one more indictment and he would sort of solidify. Let's, let, let's, let's, let's play this because yeah. uh, I get your reaction to that. This is a moment from a Trump speech just 11 days ago. Every time they file an indictment, We go way up in the polls. We need one more indictment to close out this election. One more indictment, and this election is closed out. Nobody has even a chance. So do you agree with that or no? Yes, because, but I think it's coupled with the fact that his opponents won't draw a contrast. Well, Chris Christie does, and Asa Hutchinson does. Chris Christie is, but Chris Christie is also probably the most compromised uh, candidate right now because he spent six years the, driving an entirely different message, and he spent six months driving this one. But to, your, to the point I was trying to make is that the antibody defense of the average Republican-based voter continues to strengthen around Trump when nobody else criticizes him and tries to offer uh, a much more stark contrast about what kind of candidate should lead the party into the future. All right. Thanks, one and all. Appreciate it. This just into CNN. North Korea makes the first public comments about the American soldier who crossed the DMZ into North Korea. That's next. Just into CNN, for the very first time, North Korea is publicly acknowledging the U.S. soldier who ran across the border from South Korea last month. CNN's Orrin Lieberman is live for us at the Pentagon. Orrin, what are North Korean officials acknowledging? What are they saying about Private Travis King? 
Jake, the little bit of information we have at this point comes from North Korean uh, state media from KCNA. And as you point out, this is the first official or public confirmation or statement we've seen from the North Korean side. And it comes nearly a month after Private Travis King ran across or crossed into North Korea. That was on July 18th. And here we are on August 15th, where again, we have this first public statement coming from North Korean state media. In it, KCNA says that uh, Private Travis King admitted that he illegally intruded into North Korea after he was on a tour there of the joint security area. It was on that tour that he ran and crossed into North Korea and was then presumably taken into custody by uh, North Korean soldiers who were there. Uh, In addition, North Korean state media goes on to say that one of the reasons he decided to run into North Korea was that he, quote, harbored ill feeling against inhuman maltreatment and racial discrimination within the U.S. Army. That, again, according to North Korean state media, and now, according to state media there, he uh, was expressing his, quote, willingness to seek refuge in North Korea or in a third country. Now, there hasn't been too much communication at all between United Nations Command and South Korea with the North Koreans, Jake, essentially just acknowledging that there was a, an ability to speak about this, but this gives a little bit uh, more information about how North Korea views this and how they're playing it. All right, Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thanks so much. In our national lead, the confirmed death toll from the nation's deadliest wildfire in more than a century now stands at 99, a number that tragically is expected to rise rise dramatically, in fact, in the coming days. Hundreds remain unaccounted for, and it's not just people. Maui's Humane Society says about 3,000 animals, uh, pets, are lost. CNN's Bill Weir is reporting from Wailuku on the island of Maui. Bill, you've been tracking the aid efforts. Has that gotten any better? Well, Jake, we've witnessed really a do-it-yourself sort of crowdsourced, uh, very aloha style of first responders up until now. But the feds are coming. The cavalry is coming, they say. FEMA today holding press conferences. Uh, Also, the Pentagon saying six new missions with the Army Command here in the Pacific, sending everything from fire support, firefighters to help these pop-up fires, to people uh, moving equipment around the island. FEMA will give a $750 one-time payment to the affected. About 3,200 families have applied for FEMA assistance, and they say they have a program set up where those now freshly homeless due to this firestorm can stay in a local hotel for an indefinite amount of time, depending on the need. But there's so much distrust, Jake, right now among locals. Some saying, don't sign the FEMA papers. You might give away your rights later. The response has been bungled in a way that it's going to take some time to win trust and heal a little bit. In the meantime, so many are graving and giving DNA samples as they try to identify more bodies. Uh, Bill, the National Weather Service is expecting uh, wind gusts to pick up to about 20 miles per hour uh, in your area over the next few days. How might that impact the search for human remains? Well, there's a couple uh, tropical storms, hurricanes. There's uh, Greg and Fernanda, which are coming. So far, it doesn't look like it'll be as bad as the firestorm last week. There could be some high winds, which kick things up here as well. We're standing by one of the infamous now sirens here around Maui, which the homeowner says never go off right now. So, so many questions about the warnings, what was done during, what's happening now. Jake? Bill Weir, thanks so much. Appreciate it. And you can help Hawaii fire victims. Head to CNN.com slash impact, CNN.com slash impact for a list of resources that have been vetted. You can also text the word Hawaii, H-A-W-A-I-I, to 707070. 
Coming up from blindside to blindsided, how the former NFL player who was the subject of the Oscar-winning film now says he was tricked. Are you going to protect the family, Michael? Our sports lead now, former NFL player Michael Orr, whose life story was, of course, portrayed in the Oscar-winning film The Blind Side, is now claiming that the family that took him in never actually adopted him and instead, in his view, tricked him into a conservatorship keeping or out of his own finances. CNN's Bryn Gingras has more on the sudden accusations and the questions surrounding them. Okay, big smile. Tui family. Michael Orr, blindsided, he says, by his family at the center of the Hollywood blockbuster. This team is your family, Michael. You have to protect him. Tony here is your quarterback. You protect his blind side. When you look at him, you think of me. Yes, ma'am. In a lawsuit, the former NFL player alleging he was tricked by Sean and Leanne Tui, believing they were adopting the 18-year-old budding football star. He became part of our lives. When, in fact, they became his conservators and, quote, have total control over Michael Orr's ability to negotiate for or enter any contract, despite the fact he was over 18 years of age and had no diagnosed physical or psychological disabilities. It's a lie Orr says he discovered in February. Never had one before. What, a room to yourself? A bed. Orr's life story from poverty to NFL stardom with the support of the Tui family became a best-selling book. Then an Oscar-winning film reportedly netting more than $330 million. Orr says he's seen none of that money and now nearly 20 years later is asking the Tuies for a full accounting of his share. The suit reads, where other parents of Michael's classmates saw Michael simply as a nice kid in need, conservators Sean Tuohy and Leanne Tuohy saw something else, a gullible young man whose athletic talent could be exploited for their own benefit. Sean Tui telling a local Tennessee newspaper, we didn't make any money off the movie. His son, SJ, not named in the suit, told Barstool Sports he did make some money, but it didn't make him rich. I made like 60, 70 grand over the course of the last four or five years. The suit also claims Orr, who just published a book about overcoming obstacles this month, unknowingly signed over the rights to his name, image and likeness in 2007 without payment. Orr has publicly stated he doesn't like how he was portrayed in the movie. I think the biggest for me is, you know, being portrayed, uh, not being able to read or write. When you go into a locker room and your teammates don't think that you can learn a playbook, you know, that weighs heavy. The Tui say they are devastated by the claims in the filing, quote, It's upsetting to think we would make any money off any of our children, but we're going to love Michael at 37, just like we loved him at 16. Now, why the suit is happening now and how Michael just realized about this conservatorship back in February are two of the questions we proposed to his attorney, but we haven't heard back. The Tuohys, though, Jake, have given us a very lengthy statement through their attorney, essentially saying that Orr tried to shake them down for money before going public with his story, saying in a statement part, the idea that the Tuohys have ever sought to profit off Mr. Orr is not only offensive, it is transparently ridiculous. Now, the next step is they're going to have to respond to this suit in court, and so we'll see how this plays out. Jake. All right, Bryn Gingress, thank you. Uh, Joining us now to discuss, Lisa McCarley. She's an estate and probate attorney. So, Lisa, as you know, a conservatorship is usually made because a person has been deemed incapacitated, someone who cannot handle his or her own financial or personal affairs, or says he did not know that he had been put into conservatorship instead of adopted until February of this year. Does that surprise you? It does surprise me, and I 
I actually went to the file. According to the Tennessee court records, he was present at the hearing when the Tuies were appointed. And in fact, his parents gave consent to them to become his conservator. So um, I'd love to see a transcript of that. But it, it is surprising that he didn't know what was going on, even at the tender age of 18. Are there any other reasons that the Tuies could have sought out a conservatorship? And, and broadly speaking, looking at this case, do you think that the Tuies have done something wrong here? In terms of the conservatorship, we actually occasionally will do this for children called guardianship because it allows the parents, the guardians, or the conservators to place people on insurance. And Mr. Tui himself said we needed to do this in order to get Michael into school. And even though you know I haven't been able to research whether that was a requirement, it actually does make sense. So there could have been very innocent reasons why they sought conservatorship at, at a, uh, for an 18-year-old who was still in high school. Do you think that the, the Tuies have done anything wrong? I mean, th- there does seem to be some evidence that, that members of the family did receive money from the film, which made more than $300 million. Uh, I haven't seen any evidence that any of that money went to Orr. W- w- what do you make of it all? Right. Well, actually, according to the file, once the Ors got this court order, they never pursued letters of guardianship or conservatorship. They never took the oath, at least from what I can see, which means that they never actually had legal authority to act on Mr. Orr's behalf. And that would be consistent with his own statement that just three years later, he was presented with a contract to sign. So they received an order, but they didn't act on it. So it will be interesting to see whether or not they actually did receive any of his money. All right, Lisa McCarley, thank you so much. Appreciate it. This just into CNN court filing showing Donald Trump's former White House chief of staff and co-defendant Mark Meadows is trying to move the Fulton County case against him to a federal court. Wolf Blitzer following this and more next in the Situation Room. Wolf? Lots going on right now, Jake. We're going to get important insight into all of this, the Georgia indictment of Donald Trump from a Republican who served as the state's top law enforcement officer, the former Georgia Attorney General Sam Sam Olins. Does he believe the district attorney's strategy for prosecuting Trump and his 18 co-defendants is appropriate and potentially successful? We'll discuss that and a lot more right at the top of the hour right here in the situation. In our Earth Matters series, a positive report for the Colorado River, thanks to an above-average snow season, federal officials now say they will ease water restrictions on the river next year. Over the last 10 years, a southwest mega drought forced water cuts in Arizona, Nevada, and California. The Colorado River supplies drinking water to an estimated 40 million people. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, formerly known as Twitter, Blue Sky if you have an invite, and I'm back on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead once you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.